Good afternoon. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, what is a fairly simple, but uh, perhaps uh, too simple question um, to answer here. Whatever happened to the Tea Party? And this is a Cato Connects event. So anyone who has any questions via Twitter and would like to participate in the discussion, please, uh, please do so if you're out there online. And of course, we'll take questions from our audience here in our auditorium as well. I'm joined uh, by Ben Dominich. He's the publisher at uh, The Federalist, which is definitely on my list of, of daily reads each day for Thank you, Caleb. <laughs> a, a broad, broad set of perspectives on uh, issues of the day, uh, culture, economics, and, and, and so forth. Emily Eakins is a research fellow at the Cato Institute and uh, director of polling. She uh, combs through a lot of the, the data about what people think about various things and has done extensive work, uh, particularly on this question uh, regarding the Tea Party. And of course, John Samples is vice president and publisher of the Cato Institute, uh, the author of numerous books, uh, some of my favorites, uh, including The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, uh, most recently, uh, The Struggle to Limit Government, which is uh, a wonderful book detailing sort of the the fights in the 1980s in the Reagan administration to try to limit the size and scope of the federal government. So, Emily, we'll begin with you because you have the data <laughs> to show us. So, to start, what did we know or what do we know now about that Tea Party of 2008, 2009, 2010? And uh, as far as politics go, where did they go and are they still a force? So the short answer is, they're still there. They're still out there in the American electorate. They're not protesting, and fewer people are going to meetings. And the Tea Party changed in its composition over time. And I actually have some data on that that I thought would be useful to show. In an analysis of a CBS New York Times survey um, that I looked at, um, I used a statistical procedure to find clusters of Tea Party members, and I found three distinct clusters in the Tea Party movement. One group is a libertarian group. One group is a more socially conservative group. They tend to go to church more. And the third group was a, what we call a racially conservative group. They're more concerned about whether President Obama was giving special favors to African Americans over white Americans. So they were more uh, racially anxious. And th while this is what the Tea Party largely looked like back in 2010, it's changed over time. And that's affecting what we're seeing now in the 2016 presidential election. So I'd like to show you another slide here. This is an estimate of the share of the Tea Party that uh, is more libertarian-leaning, meaning so they're very economically conservative, but more socially moderate. Um, they're less concerned about immigration and things, like, uh, things of that nature. And actually, several studies have shown this, that the Tea Party has changed over time. They're, so libertarians kind of dropped out a little bit, not completely, but they declined, and new people entered the Tea Party movement. And these individuals were a little bit less concerned with the original issue that the Tea Party raised, which was government was getting too big, it was unfair, it was doling out special favors to the politically connected and we have to rein it in. This group is a little different. They were more concerned about immigration, concerned about Sharia law, and a little bit less concerned about limited government. Today, the Tea Party has changed, like I said, but still most of them care a lot about limited government. In 2010, 96% said they wanted a smaller government 
with fewer services. That number's dropped to about 76 to 80% today. But still, most of them, limited government is the key. And so with this data here, we're looking at different groups of Republican voters and their preference for president in the 2016 election. We see that Tea Party supporters tend to prefer Ted Cruz more than the other candidates. And this is pretty consistent. Um, they tend to disproportionately support Ted Cruz, but a lot of them like Donald Trump as well. And some people find this a little surprising, given that Donald Trump has um, emphasized less the issue of limited government and instead focused more on immigration. And I think part of that is that first slide that I showed, which is the heterogeneous nature, the coalition of Tea Partiers. Certain Tea Partiers have been drawn to the Trump candidacy where others have not, and they've gone to Ted Cruz. Here you also see that evangelicals, these are evangelical Republicans, they're kind of evenly split. This survey was conducted when Ben Carson still had a lot more support in the polls. And since he's dropped out, that's helped Ted Cruz. But notice that our fourth block of voters here, the regular GOP, these are Republicans who don't identify as a Tea Party supporter or an evangelical. That's where Donald Trump is deriving a lot of his support from. So I've noticed there's a lot of confusion um, when it comes to the Tea Party and Donald Trump. A lot of folks think that the Tea Party fueled Donald Trump. It's actually, I would argue, the opposite. The only candidate that I believe is capable of beating Donald Trump in the Republican primary is actually Ted Cruz, who would not be here today if it weren't for the Tea Party movement that propelled him to the Senate in 2012. So I have just one more slide. Um, what I did is I looked at the Tea Party supporters. Who votes for Donald Trump? Who votes for Ted Cruz? And looked at a bunch of different answers to questions in the survey to see what predicts who votes for Cruz or Trump. And we noticed some patterns. There are some big differences between Tea Party supporters that like Cruz versus Tea Party supporters that like Donald Trump. So Tea Party supporters who like Ted Cruz they care a lot more about limited government. If you are a Tea Partier that cares about limited government, you're like nine times more likely to say you like to vote for Cruz over Donald Trump. Um, also, they were more likely to be very conservative and have higher levels of education and care a lot about accountability. Donald Trump Tea Party supporters were different. They actually were predicted by um, questions on the issue of race, a little bit more racially anxious. Also, um, questions that kind of get at authoritarian tendencies, a strong respect for authority, having strong leaders, they opt for Ted, or excuse me, for Donald Trump, but not for Ted Cruz. And in fact, um, Ted, or Donald Trump attracts the more moderate, the less conservative Tea Party supporters. And also, um, he was positively predicted by being white. Um, so that's also a notable difference. So there really is a difference. The Tea Party has split uh, between those who like Donald Trump and those who like Ted Cruz, some of them like Marco Rubio. Um, and we even see this in the, the Tea Party leaders, where we saw Sarah Palin endorsing Donald Trump, but then Glenn Beck, who joined Ben Dominic here in um, the National Review edition that was dedicated to um, saying why Donald Trump should be stopped. Um, so we see that divide playing out among um, elites as well. So let's go back in time just a little bit. And uh, to you, Ben Dominic, I would ask, what did limited government advocates get out of that Tea Party wave mm -hmm. in 2010 and beyond? Well, I think that they got a lot. Um, the Tea Party, like any other uh, social or political movement, 
uh, goes away by becoming part of something bigger. You, you have the uh, prohibition movement that becomes taken up by one of the parties. You have the abolition movement that becomes uh, a central uh, tenet of the Republican Party. You have these various social movements that, if they find success, are subsumed by and, and included in uh, the existing political structure. Um, we have a bias here toward, uh, toward two parties in, our, in the way that our system works. Um, and that necessarily means that for a lot of these Tea Party voters, particularly the people up there who are on the Cruz side of the ledger, they became part of a conservative uh, cohort, a, a coalition uh, that now prioritizes things very differently uh, than it might have uh, just a few years ago. And I think that that's a, a real break if you compare the behavior of the Congresses currently uh, to the behavior of the Congress under George W. Bush, for example, the, that led to all the frustration as the bottom dropped out in 2006, fiscal conservatives you know, becoming so frustrated with their own party. That had an immediate impact, and it had an impact not just in the people who make up the, the cohort that goes out and votes, but also in the people who were being elected. Um, you saw over and over again a situation play out, primarily in 2010, but beyond as well, where you, you would have a, uh, a choice uh, dictated by the National Republican Senatorial Committee or uh, other you know, large groups. They would pick their candidate and they would, there would be a Tea Party running against them or someone who at least you know, espoused the virtues of what the Tea Party was talking about. Uh, and they were almost always you know, dismissed as, well, they'll be more difficult to elect in a general election. So we should go with this safe choice. We should go with Charlie Crist over Marco Rubio. We should go with Arlen Specter over Pat Thumey. We should go with uh, Bennett over Lee, you know, Trey Grayson over Rand Paul, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. The, the election that brought in a lot of those members of Congress uh, brought people who really wanted to have an impact on Washington to change Washington and to uh, refuse to go along with the Obama agenda. It's, it's easy to forget that in the immediate aftermath of the passage of Obamacare, John Cornyn, my old boss, and some other senators were quoted as saying, well, what will you do about Obamacare? And their response was, well, we'll get rid of the bad parts and keep the good ones. And that was a response that was completely rejected by the Tea Party and by the base because they realized that that was unacceptable. And so very quickly, their, their, uh, their oratory adjusted in a way that, uh, that uh, responded to the demands of the Tea Party uh, at the time. So I, my basic perception is this. The Tea Party has elected a new generation of, of, uh, of conservative, particularly fiscally conservative members who have unique views that are contrary to the traditional uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce approach to, uh, to running government, that they, they have a di uh, very different priorities in a number of different respects, and those priorities are being felt within the Republican coalition. Is it as significant of a policy change uh, as you would like? Not necessarily. I mean, we, have, we still have a problem with too big to fail. How did this all start out? It started out with opposition to, to bailouts, to a failed stimulus, to everything else that came with that, and then to a very aggressive Obama agenda that came after. But I think that if you're going to make a distinction between the people who are on the left side of that graph and the people who are on the right, I think it's a distinction that kind of cuts a line in, in, uh, between different groups within the Tea Party in this sense. If the message of the fiscal conservatives who really care about limited government at that time was no more bailouts, then the message of the people who are on the left side of that ledger, from my perspective, is largely, where's my bailout? In other, in other words, President Obama has been an authoritarian, doling out favors to his favorite interest groups. Now we're going to have a politics play that will benefit me.
understood that Trey Grayson was going to be the person who was going to uh, be the next senator from the Commonwealth of Kentucky. That mm -hmm. first poll came out and Rand Paul was up uh, a huge amount. Mm -hmm. And you attended Fancy Farm, the uh, uh, famous picnic in Western Kentucky that year. And what did you, what did you find? Well, I found uh, something disturbing happened, at which at the time didn't seem that great because that was a, a real high point. So it's 2010, the Tea Party movement's really getting toward a year old, but it's beginning to translate itself into electoral outcomes. Rand Paul's victory over Trey Grayson was uh, a big part of that. Remember Mitch McConnell had selected Trey Grayson. He was a hand-picked candidate. So it was that front end of kind of anti-establishment politics. Uh, but at Fancy Farm in Kentucky politics, it's the kickoff for the fall season. The leaders of both parties come and introduce whatever the major uh, race is, and that year it was the U.S. Senate race. So the Republican leader in Kentucky, indeed the builder of the Republican Party in Kentucky, really, is Mitch McConnell. And so he gave a speech to introduce Rand Paul, that I and it was a remarkable speech in that um, it was all about Obama and Pelosi and uh, Democratic leaders on the one hand, but it was also about, and I remember this, coming cuts to Medicare and how the McConnell team and Rand Paul in the Senate would prevent cuts to Medicare. Now, straight up, Medicare cuts or reforms and so on are, you know, you can talk about it that way or you can talk about it reforms as you might want to on a more libertarian way. But surely the idea of protecting the entitlement state, as I remember just sitting there listening to McConnell and looking over and thinking, I wonder what that guy, Rand Paul, thinks about that. And then Rand Paul got up and gave his speech, and not surprisingly, he didn't say, well, Senator McConnell, we've got to do something about uh, the, these things are overdeveloped. They're, they're overcommitments. So right there, you had this issue, which was there was this great popular insurgency. But on the one hand, Mitch McConnell, you can say a lot of things about him, and a lot of people do. But uh, one of the things that's certainly true is Mitch McConnell knows how to win elections in the state of Kentucky. And uh, that means he knows, among other things, about the voters in Kentucky. So what he was saying was things that were later borne out in some degree by polling, which was that there was support among this insurgent group uh, for Medicare and Social Security, the, the heart of the entitlement state and programs that were going to have to be dealt with and are going to have to be dealt with uh, and certainly would have to be dealt with if you were going to limit government. So on the one hand, you had this great popular uh, insurgency, this feeling of resistance, uh, and Obamacare being part of that. On the other hand, underlying that too was the possibility that many of these people that were in the Tea Party actually supported parts of it. Now I think what we see now is that group is really supportive of Donald Trump. And some of them may have been, as Emily says, regular GOP people, but uh, that's what Trump stands for. And uh, that, so there has been, I sense, the Tea Party was a coalition. It was a bunch of groups drawn together. And they're breaking up now. And the populism of the moment is one that is anti-libertarian insofar as Trump is the leader. But you saw the possibilities in August 2010.
It's very hard to control a movement, very hard to, for it to have some effect on, uh, particularly in the American system, which of course is a separation of power system. You can't just win majorities in one election and expect that you're going to, to change things. Uh, Emily Eakins, what I take from some of the data you presented here is that uh, the commitment to limited government may have been weakly held by some of the people in the Tea Party, and uh, it seems that uh, the, the far right, the people who don't, who are GOPers, don't necessarily even call themselves Tea Partiers, are strongly pro-Trump, and, and the people who strongly identify with the Tea Party seem to be much stronger in favor of uh, Ted Cruz. Has, has that uh, difference, I guess, paid any dividends on behalf of limited government, in your view? Well, with the beginning of your question, I think that even many Trump supporters also care about limited government. I'm not saying that they don't. It's just that you're more likely to opt for Ted Cruz if that's a priority for you. Um, now, uh, the average, many Donald Trump supporters care about limited government way more than the average Hillary Clinton supporter would, for instance, or the average Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, also, the Tea Party movement has changed over time. That initial group that was mobilized, like Ben said, in reaction to TARP and then the stimulus, I mean, large, TARP was really kind of the the catalyst of the Tea Party movement. Those fiscal conservatives, um, they comprised the movement early on. Well, over time, they became kind of a, I mean, it's changed, but at the beginning, they were like this winning brand and everyone wanted a jersey to be on the team. And so lots of people kind of jumped on trying to get their pet issues um, to benefit from the, from, the, from the movement itself. And as that happened, some of the kind of the limited government core was kind of diluted to some degree. But I wouldn't say that it went away altogether. Um, a lot of people joined in that cared a lot more about issues of immigration and um, concerns about uh, Sharia law and things like that. And limited government was not their focus. But I would still say that that was the minority rather than the majority. When I spoke with academic Michael Heaney uh, not too long ago, and he studies the anti-war movement in the United States. And during the Bush years, it was huge. And uh, David Bowes, our executive vice president here at Cato, likes to ask regularly, where did it go? It's, during the Obama years, it seemed to, to vanish. But these were, it seems, people who uh, became more concerned with other issues. Some of them were just uh, partisans who wanted to be a part of that group. And uh, it similar with the Tea Party then? Well, I think there's, in, in American pol all politics, there's this element of tribalism, which is if your party's in power, they're your team, then you don't criticize your team. Um, whereas if there was a Republican in the White House, I think that would have done a lot of good for the, the anti-war movement to continue their steam, I suppose. Um, the same thing could be true for the, the Tea Party movement, perhaps, if a kind of Tea Party-endorsed candidate had won in 2012. Um, I'm not sure where they would have gone. Um, but I don't think it's true to say that their preferences changed. I think that the people back in 2010 who were just furious about the bailouts of the Wall Street banks and the financial institutions and the automakers and then the stimulus package and all of, the, all of that that happened, I think that those individuals remain, um, they, they remain opposed to those types of programs. They haven't changed their mind and now say, oh, well, I want government to give me a bailout. I think they tend to still say, government shouldn't be in the business of bailouts altogether. However, there are other people out there that don't agree with that. <laughs> they are okay with government giving them a bailout. And they probably joined in over time. 
All right, so uh, please, if you, anyone in our uh, auditorium here has a question, please uh, raise your hand and we'll have microphones brought to you. And if anyone who is uh, watching online has a question as well, just uh, send that to us via Twitter uh, using the hashtag CatoConnects, and we'll get to as many of your questions uh, as we can. Start back here. PJM. Hi, uh, Pat Michaels from Cato. In the 2010 uh, congressional election, how many of the 64 seats that changed from Democrat to Republican were uh, Tea Party candidates? That's a part. That's part A of a question. That, that's a hard question, in particular, to answer because there were a number of people I would say who presented themselves as being Tea Party candidates because it was fashionable at the time. And then upon arriving into Washington, turned out not to have been at all uh, sort of what they represented. Who would be the most notable person who did that? Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm fond of, uh, uh, I mean, there are a number of congressmen who I think could qualify for that. But just mm -hmm. in terms of their redistribution, do you have a favorite? I, I thought Marco Rubio was elected in 2010. Marco Rubio is a difficult case. Uh, I will say that the thing to remember is he was always a social conservative first. He was uh, Mike Huckabee's statewide director. You know, he was someone who clearly came from that sort of wing and then quickly found himself kind of a champion of, of the Tea Party because they were anti-Charlie Crist, because they, they viewed him as being uh, problematic. Rubio came in with that Tea Party mantle, uh, but then once he arrived, kind of had a, different, a difficult dance to do because he's basically a hybrid. He, he has both the inside support and then a little bit of outside cred, and that made actually things a little more difficult for him, I would say, in terms of defining his own Senate career. But sorry, that's too long. Well, part, part two was this. Actually, uh, I don't answer to that question. Oh, you do? I'm going to add to that before we get to part two. So I actually looked at this question using a similar analysis to what I did here. These are logit regressions. I wanted to see if you voted for TARP in 2008, what was the likelihood that you remained there in 2010? So as you know, a lot of people don't just outright lose an election. If they think they're going to lose, they'll probably retire to spend more time with their family or something like that. Um, and so I actually looked at the data, and it is true. If you were a Republican and voted for TARP in 2008, you were significantly less likely to remain there in 2010 and 2012. But no such statistical relationship exists for the Democrats. Now, we know TARP passed with Democratic votes. They were not punished for their, for their bailout vote. Only Republicans were punished. Okay, I'll get to part two, and then I'll put the mic down. Uh, in the House, almost every close race was won by or lost by a Democrat who voted for cap and trade. Uh, in the Senate, the same year, uh, every close race was won by the Democrats. What was the difference between the two? The difference was they both voted for health care, cap and trade. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Not particularly, but, uh, but, I do, <laughs> but I do think that's an interesting statistic. Uh, if, it would be interesting to delve into that a bit more and look at the actual, the, the particular sort of effects of, of those races and how the issue played out within them. Yeah, in, in these, uh, Pat, in, in this and in the um, 
I'm thinking about the uh, 1980 Senate race, flipped over to Republican for the first time in many years, and also the 94 House. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, inevitably, there's a lot of closely contested races. And one argument about it is, I mean, that's part of what makes a wave, but part of it may be just there's random elements that all come down the same way, uh, and you end up with uh, a much larger turnover. I mean, the, the other significant thing about all this is it's sort of both in 2010 and 2014 shape all of this is it was 64 seats, in, as Pat notes, in, uh, in 2010. You had another large turnover in 2014. Uh, these were really historically large changes in the House. It's only 15% of the House, but still, by the, a lot of people win every time. Uh, and so you can understand that in that context, you can understand, since it was a historic election, you can understand the frustration of people some of whom wrote me about this event who said, what happened to the Tea Party? Well, they voted, did a big thing expecting change, and nothing happened. All right, right down here. <clears throat> Thank you, um, Pat Spann. The, um, I wondered if um, you could go get a little definition when uh, this slide here, this is racial attitudes. And also your first one that said something about had the word racial in it. If if you could define what is driving that, what are the questions? Is this like, I mean, I don't believe in affirmative action. Does that mean I have a negative racial attitude? I mean, the what what are some of the questions that are forming? Um, you know, we're beginning to sound like uh, Democrats. <laughs> um, that is a very good question for you to ask. In Political science, researchers have developed a set of questions that they use to try to detect covert um, racial resentment. They say that it is different than racism, but that it's this, it, it is a form of a racial attitude. Now, personally, I think a lot of the questions that they use are not the most precise measures. I think they get a lot more in that group than they should. But in this instance, we're only looking at Republicans. We're, in this particular model, we're only looking at Republicans and we're, we're controlling for all these other things. And when you do that, I actually trust this measure to work fairly well. I don't know exactly what it's telling us. I'm not saying it's not racism, but it's telling us something. There's something about answers to these questions that when you control for all the other things that were in the model and you're only looking at Republicans, there's something that's distinct just about Donald Trump. Um, these questions don't predict voting for any other Republican candidate except for Trump. And what does that mean? I will leave that to the audience to decide. Um, I take your point that a lot of times the measures that are used by academics are overly broad, and I don't buy it, to be honest with you. But in this instance, when you're controlling for all the other things, you're only looking at Republicans, and it doesn't predict literally any other Republican candidate except for Donald Trump, there's some, I would say that there's something going on that uh, merits further investigation. Well, I think what's going on there is, is, simply put, the tension that has existed within the Republican Party for a very long time between um, the, the ideals of a classically liberal approach to government and, and the white identity politics that sometimes motivates people. The truth is that for 
the, for the manufacturing worker in Michigan who just voted for, for Donald Trump, there's no reason that his interests are any less valid or any, you know, it's, it's not wrong to have policies that sort of cater to his, his needs. The difference is those policies should be about, about less government and more liberty, more personal freedom, as opposed to redistributive acts and things of that nature. It's kind of an argument over what that looks like. I think Republicans have been largely uh, unwilling in recent years to play the identity politics game out of, out of fear of being depicted as racists, as being something along the lines of what we see in Europe with the far-right populist parties, with Le Pen and with other things. Those parties tend not to believe in free markets, not to believe in free trade. They tend to be more economically nationalist. They tend to be a little more xenophobic. Sometimes they have you know, certain ideas about the way that, uh, that uh, government ought to act within marketplaces to control people's behavior that, are, that would be anathema to someone like Paul Ryan. Okay? But at the same time, I think that identity politics play, which is what you were talking about earlier with the Medicare cuts, has always been present there as some aspect of the Republican coalition. You know, you've seen it from Mike Huckabee in the past talking about things of this nature. You've seen it from other politicians before. I just think that Trump is becoming kind of a, a has become in the course of this campaign, someone who embodies all of that. And so I think that's one of the reasons you see that association. There's actually another side to this that is not Republican, but is there is a, a, something of a, a discussion for a while uh, on the Democratic side yes. of things about, the, uh, you know, can you have a winning coalition without what's called the white working class? And this is sort of the Reagan Democrats once again. It's all of those kinds of arguments. And they divide over that. Some people say that, uh, you know, you, th that can't happen and you, and you need to uh, come back to this more group identity. One point I would like to make here is that to the extent that this exists, and uh, Emily's uh, indications are that it's fairly, and I think you told me that it's, that's probably an overestimate. It's probably smaller than, than that number. Uh, this poses a real a problem for a libertarian or a limited government politics that's really individualistic, that really doesn't make group identity claims, and really ends up on things like immigration uh, on the other side that is toward a freer, more open immigration policy, and a number of other di uh, different issues. Um, that kind of group identity politics, to the extent that it is the basis of politics, uh, is something that libertarianism or classical liberalism is uh, really not very adept at uh, playing that kind of political one, game. One more point on this. I, I wrote a piece in, uh, at the Federalist back in uh, August uh, last year called Are Republicans Are for Freedom or for White Identity Politics? And I went through a lot of this. The one thing that we should remember, because it's easy to forget, is that when Barack Obama made his comment about voters clinging to their guns and religion, that was within the context of the primary. He was talking about Hillary Clinton's voters. And I think that there were a lot of Hillary Clinton voters who were in that kind of disaffected cohort over the past several years who've become frustrated with Obama and are now backing Trump. When you bring those people into your coalition, they bring their ideas with them. And with that comes a lot of nationalism, protectionism, things of that nature. All right, uh, who has questions? We have one right here, right there. Uh, and a the quick and a slow question. This is Bruce Guthrie. On the slide where significant was usually misspelled, the one that was up there, um, I don't understand, do the three asterisks mean more important? You, there's a missing I in most of this. Uh, does, the, does the three asterisks mean 
uh, that it's more significant, less significant it's than a, does the umlaut? What does that mean? We have greater certainty in our estimate. It's more strength. asterisks, more yeah, certainty. And this is based on what date? So this is a survey that was conducted in November of 2015, okay. but it included an oversample of about 335 Tea Party supporters. So it was a good, it was a good survey to use to get a better picture at how Tea Party supporters are divvying up their support before there's a bandwagon candidate. Like, who's your first pick okay. before there's a bandwagon candidate? And then also we talked about, you know, how. Uh, people that once their people won, it changed their alignment. If the Republicans crash and burn in the next election, how do you expect that's going to affect Tea Party? Will they move off to another movement or will they become revitalized? Do you have any clues? So uh, my, my view on this is that um, uh, we, we forget this, uh, but sometimes parties die. Sometimes they go away. Sometimes they come back with the same name, but a very different coalition than what they had before. And I do think that it's possible that if, if um, uh, that if it, it, it's very possible that what we could see within you know a a potential President Trump sort of situation is one where uh, Tea Partiers, fiscal conservatives, people who have strong ideological beliefs view themselves as kind of the loyal opposition within a, within a group. They recognize that there's no longer a conservative party in the traditional sense or in the fusionist sense, that instead they're merely one aspect of it. And I think what you would see is a lot of Tea Partiers or, or Tea Party friendly people within, uh, within the Congress, people like Ben Sass, uh, who's already come out and said he would never support Trump, work within that coalition to try to essentially make uh, uh, free market po policies, the answer for what promises Trump is making as president. I don't think that they would necessarily break off. This is a country that doesn't typically tolerate long-running sort of three-party situations. They, they they usually are only a transitional point where you know you have you have a progressive party for a minute and then it becomes something else. You have a free soil party for a minute and then it becomes something else. That kind of thing. And and so I think you could see something like that happen where. Tea Partiers within this one election, including I think a lot of evangelicals uh, who are frustrated with Trump, the social conservatives that you talked about earlier, I could see them having an effect on a libertarian party on on that candidacy temporarily. But I don't think that that's something that would sustain itself for a long time. I think that you would see either a redefinition or or sort of a growing of uh, of a new coalition within the Republican Party that would balance against it. All right, we have a question right here. Hello, Martin Moulton. Um, one issue which I'm surprised is not on this chart is, is, you know, the area of limited government where we're not being interventionist. And that's one area where Trump stands apart from both the Democrats and all of his Republican candidates. And it seems like you're not giving him credit for wanting to limit government by not getting involved in these foreign aggressions. Oh. But that's a very fair point. Um, the survey didn't include all the different issues that um, ideally we'd like to have to really investigate it. We were limited in what questions we had to work with, but that's a very good point, and there would probably be a difference there. Uh, there's another side to that. I agree with that, and uh, there's been a couple of uh, pieces, I guess, in the papers about the things he said, and as is often the case with him, there's no white papers, there's no extended books of policy. You've got sort of off-the-cuff remarks, which seem to be 
Uh, well, these interventions were not very sensible. They were the same kind of stupidity that I sort of, he ascribes to everything done in Washington. I think what troubles people, uh, my colleagues and, and me and others that are, take a limited government perspective, is there is a, his off-the-cuff remarks are awfully, uh, are, can be characterized as showing something of an authoritarian personality. Uh, that is to say that he seems to think that and the leader uh, mystique. That is, the leader can solve all the problems. And more often than not, the leader can do it by being strong or being, uh, you know, acting in a kind of discretionary or arbitrary way. So, yes, in terms of what we know about the policies, that certain non-interventionism seems to be the idea. But the character himself and the man himself seems to suggest that there would be a great risk of kind of, one could even say almost irrational interventions or threats. Uh, his discussion of the Iranian treaty, for example, was uh, kind of uh, scary in a sense. Well, but I, I mean, I would agree with you. I think that you're, I think you're onto something there, but I also would su suggest that it's interesting to me that, that these these facets of his agenda that he sticks to consist more consistently than the rest of what he says is basically people in Washington are idiots who do bad economic deals that screw you over, including bad trade deals, bad tax deals, bad everything, uh, immigration and building a wall. And his, his sort of, his proof of his leadership capacity is I was right about Iraq and everybody else was wrong and I was right about all these things and we're, we do too much, we shouldn't be doing that, we should be partnering with Putin, things of that nature. I think that's all, it's all interesting. What's, what's sort of more interesting to me is how unwilling Republican leaders have been to kind of look at their own agenda as in response to this in the sense that you just had two candidates take 75% of, of a historic vote level in Kansas, both of whom have the opposite position on Libya than most of you were espousing just you know, a few years ago, certainly than Marco Rubio was espousing. What does that mean? What does that say about us? What does it say about our foreign policy? Maybe we should be thinking about these things a little bit differently. Those are not questions I'm hearing right now from anybody. I wonder if that'll start happening if Trump ends up being the nominee. But I, I think it would be interesting for them to sort of have a period of self-examination, let's say. All right. Quest more questions? In the back here and then down front here. Hi, I'm Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. I do a lot of research. I'm a former opposition researcher for moderates and that demographic that usually swings an election. And the women, I blogged this like six months ago, did not want Hillary Clinton. So I had one person I spoke to that's part of a focus group, and they really did not like the pictures of Donald Trump's wife. So I Googled. And if you go to Cato Connects, it should be up right now. But what happened was is that Twitter deemed it inappropriate because she's wearing very underwear and sexual positions. And it's very upsetting to the demographic. And I really feel that this is a problem for the GOP because these are the family values party. And one of my focus group members who's undecided is very upset. She doesn't you have a, want to. You have a so question? My question is: Is how is this going to be addressed within the party, as far as or the conservative movement? How do you address this? So, Thank you. So let me just very quickly say: I think it is interesting that we have had so many Southern uh, voters, particularly Southern self-described evangelical voters, cast a vote for someone who has the kind of Caligula-like tastes of Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think I think you know it's it's fair to say that the best commentary that was ever done about Trump uh, was by uh, comedian uh, John Mulaney who said that he is 
he is a hobo's idea of what a rich person should be. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so I think, to a certain extent, this is due to, in my view, the, the uh, two factors, basically. One is uh, an increase in secularization in the Republican coalition, that they are a more secular cohort now than they were before. Less religious attendance, less church attendance, more viewing evangelical as a, uh, as a tribal term as opposed to a, a necessary a reflect, necessarily a reflection of your values. And then uh, finally, I think it's the success in recent years of the prosperity gospel. The idea among uh, propagated in, among some Christian churches that essentially uh, success is an indicative of the blessings of, of the Almighty. And in each of these senses, uh, Donald Trump can kind of cut across and appeal to some of those voters. Uh, in terms of what it does to the Republican Party, I have no idea. <laughs> I want to add one thing to what you were saying about a lot of people were surprised by the share of evangelical voters who went for Trump in South Carolina. This hasn't been the case in all the different states, but in South Carolina, he won the evangelical vote. Um, a political scientist was in the field actually at that same time with a survey um, and found that um, the evangelicals who were supporting Trump were significantly more likely to, or excuse me, significantly less likely to attend church regularly. So there's actually a divide within the evangelical movement that you see within the kind of the Republican coalition, which is the evangelicals who go to church regularly tend to opt for Ted Cruz, the evangelicals who um, don't attend church that regularly, but for them it's more of an identity, like I am evangelical as my identity, but it's not really borne out in like weekly church attendance, then that, was, that, that group significantly went for Trump. There were, one other thing about moderates uh, that I found odd on Super Tuesday was in most of the states where Trump won, most of them, uh, his greater share, he had a greater share come from self-identified moderates than from self-identified conservatives. Now, that's close call. It was like three states to two or something like that. But it was still striking to me that self-identified moderates uh, were, tended to be more supportive often uh, than self-identified conservatives. Both terms, by the way, may not mean much of anything in terms of policy. Let me ask a, a broader question. So we have this Tea Party movement that seemed to spring up out of nowhere, reaction to Bush and then uh, continued reaction to Obama, and then the Republican Party gives these people Mitt Romney. Yes. <laughs> so what? I mean, what? What does that say? About you picked the one guy. <laughs> you picked literally the one guy in America who can't run against Obamacare. The one guy. There wasn't another guy. <laughs> so what does that? What does that say about the GOP and its its willingness to actually try to absorb, as you say, to subsume this? Mm -hmm. Uh, anti-government, lim limited government uh, platform. Well, I, I feel like this is the you know this is the tension that's at the heart of the Republican coalition right now, and it, it's partially I would say it's actually a generational divide, where where younger members um, we we see that you know right now with with you know the the uh, the younger sort of cohort of senators and congressmen who are not used to sort of the old ways of doing things and don't want to get back to those days, those good days when senators were completely polite to each other and, and uh, you know, would, would exchange earmarks like they were candy. Um, and I think that this, you know, is a, is a situation that kind of has to play itself out. But I do think that there is a path forward for a Republican coalition that includes more libertarian perspectives, has slightly different priorities than it did in the past when it comes to fiscal policy, you know, is, is looking at this, you know, more from a populist perspective in certain ways. But that requires leaders who can help translate that energy into something that is actually useful and helpful, saying something along the lines of, 
I mean, I, I think Cruz has been doing this recently, but I think he should have been doing it earlier. Basically saying that, that the, the problem with Trump is not that he is, uh, that he's playing a game with you, it's that he is not going to be able to, he's not going to do these things that he's promising to do. He's not actually going to, you know, change things. That he's right that the system is rigged. He's right that you know that the, there's a game being played on you here by by the elites. Um, but the path to fixing that is not is not Trump. Is not what he's actually going to do. So. There is this. I mean, I think Romney and just about everyone else, um, except maybe Bob Dole, uh, going back to '92 or so. Uh, there's a sense in which they picked the candidate they thought was most electable. They, that was also true of Romney. And they also picked the candidate that had come closest before, right? And even now, if you look uh, at the polling, which arguably doesn't mean a whole lot this early, but still, if you look at it, uh, the Republican electorate is selecting the least electable person. And they're, the most electable person uh, against Hillary Clinton is Marco Rubio. He, he's enjoying a three or four point lead right now. Kasich is actually, I think, slightly more electable. Or, or but, Kasich. But, but it's, 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 it's somebody else. <laughs> they're, they're picking the guy that's like three or four down, and that's not, you know, that there's been no negative ads yet about all of the stuff about, uh, I don't know if the wife will play such a large role, but there's so much stuff. It's a target rich environment for the. Uh, opposition research of Hillary Clinton. You know, when you think about it, um, it's pretty interesting that two of the top three contenders right now for the Republican nomination for president literally would not be there today if it were not for the Tea Party movement. Both Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were catapulted to the Senate way faster than ordinarily would have been possible. Ted Cruz might still be the state solicitor general back in Texas. Marco Rubio, maybe he'd still be in the state legislature in Florida. They would not be senators, and they would not be in a position to run for president. But the grassroots Tea Party movement put them in this position. And what's, what I think is interesting, now it's always hard, you know, counterfactuals are impossible to prove, but I think it's very likely that Donald Trump probably would have ran for, run for president this year, uh, regardless of the Tea Party movement. Um, he kind of started the so-called birther movement, uh, or at least kind of gave voice to the birther movement, questioning whether President Obama was in fact an American citizen and thus eligible to be president. He was doing that way back at the beginning. Um, and there were, you know, there was quite a group of Americans that kind of gravitated to that. I think Donald Trump would have run for president regardless of the Tea Party movement. But it's interesting that, in fact, the only candidate that is capable of actually beating Donald Trump in the Republican nomination for president is, in, is it someone that was put there by the Tea Party, Ted Cruz, most likely. Based on the data, Ted Cruz is the only person that would beat Donald Trump. Um, and so this grassroots movement that sprung up kind of independent of Donald Trump and birtherism, although there's some overlap, absolutely, um, in fact, kind of put in place the one candidate that could actually beat him. Um, it's all coincidental. It's not planned. But I find it fascinating nonetheless. Right down here, any other questions? This lady, this lady right here. I'm getting nervous, and it's not me. OK. Um, well. Oh, goodness. Fake personality. Here we go. Uh, which political party do you think is best at focusing on each branch of the government, legislative, executive, and judicial? Not, when I say each branch, I don't mean those three, but the divisions of those three. Uh, you mean the separation of powers? For example, DHHS, human services versus business versus... Oh. You mean uh, which party could 
rud each one or which party would be best at each division oh. of the government? Well, I think that depends on your prior views about uh, which party you like. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that for a variety of reasons, the executive branch uh, below the political appointees is your, with the exception of defense and maybe the Department of Commerce, are, is mostly going to be populated by people that lean Democratic uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, in the legislative branch, at one time you would have said that the uh, Democrats were much better at Congress than the Republicans, but that was before 1994. I think probably they're about as uh, very similar. How are you uh, defining better? Like ineffective in passing yeah, their legislation? In, in, uh, I think thought the question was about in each branch who was the best, and I, I think that's why I was best at controlling or make, getting whatever they wanted to do through. Right here. And then back there. Right here. It's cool. It's on? Uh, yes, I would like to uh, get back to the uh, issue of accountability, which is one of your uh, bullet points. And I think that is one of the things that has really been the driver behind the Tea Party movement. I've been with it uh, going on seven years. Um, but what, what can you tell us, you know, how, how do we um, accomplish that? So, let me start uh, from, you know, the, the Tea Party is, is very disparate, uh, spread out and uh, not led by any one person. So it, it makes it difficult to. How, well, let me, uh, to vary that just a little bit, how responsible was the Tea Party movement for the flatlining of federal spending a few years ago? Well, so if I may, I, want, I wanted to respond first sure. to saying I agree that I believe the central impulse of the Tea Party movement is this belief that our country is losing a sense of accountability that that is why government is bailing out banks and bailing out automakers and bailing out cities and bailing out people. That individuals who care a lot about what you're talking about, they tend, that seems to be what's behind their desire for limited government. And I think that this is often lost, and that's why I'm glad you brought it up. Because what I often hear is people talking about liberty, like we want more liberty, that's why we want limited government, and I, I, I agree with that. That is true. But I think a lot of times what people are saying when they say, I want limited government, what they're really saying is they say, you know, government comes in here and is this unfair arbiter. It bails out people from their bad choices, punishes people who make good choices, um, and kind of gets in the way. We need to have individuals face the consequences of their actions in order to have a functioning society and economy. And government often gets in there and intervenes and interferes with that process. So what I think the central impulse of the Tea Party movement was and is, still, largely speaking, is to try to bring that um, into clearer focus. But then to your, the second part of your question, which is, well, have they been successful in doing that? Mm -hmm. I think that it's mixed, um, depending on who you're talking to. Um, if you look at federal spending um, from, so if you look at federal spending over the past several decade, um, decades, it just goes up and up and up and up every single year. No matter what people tell you, they're going to spend more money, except in 2010, something happened. It kind of flatlined for about four years. Is that right? And it's now, now it's starting to go back up again. 
but for this one little blip, spending actually did not increase. Now, it didn't decrease, but it didn't increase like it had been for decades previous. Why is that? Most likely, all of those members of Congress that were elected through the Tea Party movement in 2010 who put the brakes on, um, caused gridlock, the sequester, are probably, that's probably the reason why. But is that, is that much? Is that a lot? That's kind of subjective. I think, I think it's more of a long-term question, too, in the sense of just getting back to the generational idea. You have a, a generation, I think, of, of uh, new people in, in coming into Washington with different perspectives and different priorities. But they also, I think, have a different awareness of what it means to be accountable to the voters who elected them. They have a much more direct line to the, from, the, from the Tea Partiers, the populists, who came out and put them into office than I think traditional, traditional politicians have had in the past. Uh, and I think that, that because of that, those people are ultimately going to be more responsive over the course of their tenure in office. And I think that that's kind of a longer term issue of, of, of rising, rising calls for accountability on behalf, on behalf of these different representatives who are supposed to represent. All right, uh, we have a question from Twitter. This is from Voss Landon. He says, in 2008, Obama captured the angry voters. In 2010, the Tea Party did. Now Trump has them. Can conservatives bring them back? We do seem to be living in uh, a life of, uh, it's not even cyclical. It's just everyone's angry all the time. And, and that... And you have to think about it. I mean, in 2008, that was the Great Recession was, uh, you had a, you had a, both at this a convergence of a, basically a failed war uh, that raised other questions and uh, a financial crisis. So all of that's to be expected. Uh, I would say that you wouldn't expect, there's a question of like, there's a lot of anger out there and it's not just left or right, Republican or Democrat or the groups that are associated with those parties. It's how they get mobilized and how they come to public attention. So in 2008, the anger... Uh, is both anti-war and uh, about the economy and so on. Uh, but that was in that period. Uh, now Trump has done this. Trump has done this through his political skills of sort, or he's found that that, that, that works. Uh, I think the question depends on people, uh, depends on the candidates and things like that. At the same time, one of the things I think that to keep in mind here, anger and rejection of the establishment and all that sort of thing, keep in mind, I think this is in some ways the most amazing thing about American politics. Uh, in, the, in 2016, we'll elect our fifth president since 1988. You think about those presidents, it's very likely that of those five presidents, four of them would have, will have been a father and son and a husband and a wife. It's almost like familial dynasties uh, are at the very part of this, at the peak of this kind of elected monarchy. Uh, and that is not something that reflects, you know, kind of populist politics or uh, maybe even accountability, that sort of thing. That's what it, the suggestion is. But there's, but there's something interesting going on there as well in the sense that you have, whenever, whenever people are frustrated with their governing rulers, their ruling class, mm -hmm. there can also be something that happens where uh, they band together as a mob and demand a solution, and the solution turns out to be more government. And we see this time and again, particularly in Europe, but also in Mexico and places of that nature, usually in places where there aren't uh, these institutions between the people and government that help sort of mitigate that anger and frustration. 
So as you see the decline of trust in institutions generally in America, you know, not just the government, but the church and uh, local officials and everything of that nature, that helps sort of fuel this process. It makes it more of an atomized culture and more one where kind of ironically, even because they think their government is no good at anything, they ask for more of it or they ask you know, for better versions of it. And if you think about it, Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump are both two sides of the same coin here in, in saying that, this, the, that the ruling class that we have, the elites that we have, just aren't very good or that they aren't looking out for you or that they've skewed the system to benefit themselves. It's a very similar message. And they're both equally authoritarian, just uh, Bernie's a lot softer about it. <laughs> I think localism is something that I'd like to hear more of us talking about. Um, localism as a solution to a lot of the problems that are being raised. When we talk about accountability, right now, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have made a lot of headway by talking about this ruling class. And, and I'm not saying they're wrong. Like, there's this ruling class that they get special favors because they went to the right universities. Uh, you know, they know the right people. They're politically connected. And they get special favors, and you don't, and that's not right. Well, localism, bringing more of what government does closer to home, closer to the states, closer to the localities in which you live, in which you know, in which you have a greater voice, I think could actually go a long way in addressing many of the concerns specifically of the Tea Party, um, but also even many of those of Bernie Sanders supporters in Occupy Wall Street. If you have less power in this faraway place, then people can't, there's less to hijack over there. Um, you know, many of the concerns um, in my research of the Tea Party movement was that all these regulations were being passed by people far away that didn't understand the unique, like the unique terrain of their environment, of their community, and the problems that they faced. And then it was just kind of imposed on them, and they had very little say in it. Um, localism, bringing that closer to home so that people who live under the rules have greater say in what those rules are. Um, I think that that would be like a, the more positive spin on this is what we should be talking more about, I think, is localism as both an answer to what the, the problems that both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, as well as the Tea Party, have raised. As the publisher of The Federalist, I entirely endorse that statement. <laughs> the American left wants everything locally grown except for government. <laughs> right back there. Any other questions? Uh, yes, Pat Corcoran. Uh, your commentary actually sort of preempted the question that I was going to bring up, but or leads into it. And that is, it appears, if the pollsters are correct, that the two protest candidates in this election, Trump on one side and Sanders on the other, are applying to, uh, are, are receiving votes from the same blue-collar constituency. And that if one, let's say, Trump was to run, there is a good possibility that that blue-collar constituency that appears over with Sanders could very well move over with him. And therefore, he would turn out to be the best candidate when you're looking at states like Ohio, Michigan. And also, as you're already pointing out now, since he's such a chameleon, if he did get elected, you'd be in a much better position trying to get uh, a more conservative government put together than if Sanders were, well, Whatever. Anyway, you, you got my point about it. <laughs> so just very quickly, the, the, there is some thought that as president you could, you could negotiate with Donald Trump. I, I think that I'm not quite as convinced that that's the case. I think, he is, I think he's a very stubborn uh, fellow and that he holds grudges for a very long time. Um, the first time he has an argument with Mitch McConnell and starts tweeting pictures of turtles all day, it'll be, it'll be kind of amusing to see. But, but the, thing, the thing that uh, really, I think, bothers me about Trump is that we are at a moment 
of opportunity, I believe, for taking back some of the traditional Madisonian roles uh, of the Congress, uh, which have been removed under President Obama and would be, I believe, s seriously abused by President Clinton. Uh, if, if you do have Trump sort of taking power, I think that he's going to hold on to a lot of those levers. But it would be interesting if there's, a, if there's a silver lining to his election from the perspective of limited government. It's that it would incentivize the Congress to assert itself to take back a lot of their Madisonian roles that they have ceded over the course of years to the administrative state. Yeah, there's, uh, your remarks remind me that I just said uh, earlier, that just now, that assuming Hillary Clinton was going to be elected. And uh, you would think that someone like me and many, many other people in Washington uh, would lack a little confidence at this point, since we all believe that Donald Trump would be out of the race by October, and that, you know, and it really is true. Until Super Tuesday, I don't think anyone actually accepted. It was like a family member dying or something that this guy was actually going to probably be the nominee, or he sort of looked that way. So it would be a mistake to say that um, he's not going to win in November. Yeah, and he has, the odd thing about him is he has directly said, I can change with the best of them. You know, it's a very odd thing to say, but it, he's going to change. He's flexible. He's flexible. Um, he's the best at changing. People the other thing him. that's going to happen is a lot of people, including people both you and I know, uh, are going to begin convincing themselves, if he becomes the nominee, that he could be, well, just about anything, like a libertarian or, as you said, the, the foreign policy issues. There's enough to build on there. You could sort of convince yourself Except this man strikes me as the kind of person that uh, grows on that, and you're not going to, in that relationship, you're not going to be the one that forms him. He's going to form you. More questions right here. So we've been talking quite a bit about coalition politics and how issues and identity have been, you know, slowly forming these grassroots movements over time, and we see it on both sides of the aisle, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. So I kind of have a twofold question. One would be this data set that you looked at. Was it just Republicans who voted consistently Republican over time? And what would really happen, do you think, to these ideas that, that you were looking at if you expanded this scope to independents who'd maybe voted both sides of the aisle or something like that? Would these issues that we're seeing that are very important hold true? Um, so the survey itself was nationally representative, um, but we had, over, we had an oversample of Tea Party supporters in it. And then it's, we use weights so that it re-weights down their percentage so they're an accurate reflection of the national sample. Um, the analysis that you see was among Republicans because um, largely those who are voting in the Republican prim primaries are usually Republicans unless it's an open primary in which you have independence. And certainly that would be interesting. Um, I don't know how it would change, but I'll take a look when I open up my computer. <laughs> Yeah, I, there is this interesting question about, I think it's the Trump question, which is, um, and some people have made this point, uh, he seems to be feeding on new people coming into the Republican primary. The, these primary numbers are way up over previous uh, years. Uh, my thought is that he's probably appealing to what I would, political scientists talk about loosely affiliated 
partisans. That is, people that may vote Republican most of the time, or some of them will vote Democratic, but the partisanship's not that big a, big a deal for them. And he may be getting them to go to the, uh, particularly because some of these primaries have been not open primaries, where you can vote for him if you're a Democrat. Uh, he may be finding a lot of people that normally don't vote and don't have a great deal of partisanship or loosely affiliated in that sense. And if that's true, that would be the basis for why he might actually win this thing. It would have been interesting, just as a historical counterfactual, to see what would have happened if, say, Ross Perot had run within a party as opposed to as an independent? Well, that's a question that, obviously, Donald Trump, much like the Republican presidential race, has also hijacked this conversation. So, <laughs> uh, with respect to the Tea Party, you know, the, the, the two parties for a very long time have agreed on one thing, which is we don't want some out, somebody who's not a member of one of our parties to run some campaign outside of the system that we've created. So that has left them, it seems, the opportunity only to run within those parties, no matter how uh, uh, distant the, their actual substantive policy proposals might be from the core of those parties. Uh, would the Tea Party have been more or less successful if Republicans and Democrats had decided, would it even exist had Republicans and Democrats decided long ago that they weren't going to play that kind of game? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. There's, uh, there's a number of different ways to think about that. We haven't had a sort of system here in the United States set up to necessarily tolerate the kind of, of parliamentary coalition building, sort of multiple factions. You don't, you don't have a socialist party with a number of representatives in the Senate you know, that's collaborating with the Democrats. It's possible that we'll move toward that, but I think that the system is, is generally constructed really just is not designed to, to work that way in the, in the long term, and that's why things flowed into uh, the Republican Party in the way they did. It is interesting to go back, though, and to read some of the early coverage of the Tea Party when it first started, because there were a number of, of smarter liberal analysts at the time. I think maybe Zephyr Teachout wrote a good piece at the time. Somebody, uh, There are a couple of different people who wrote pieces basically saying, this is a movement that Democrats should respond to, that they should uh, embrace, and that they should bring into uh, the Democrat coalition at the time on the basis of uh, some of the anti-war stuff, some of the other sort of approaches that they said could, could, have, been, uh, uh, could have been kind of manipulated and, and met up with. Instead, the way it played out was there was no interest in doing that on the Democratic side, and it became clear that the only path for them was to become a part of this Republican coalition. Our institutions are set up in such a way where, um, you know, winner-take-all, single-member districts where you get two parties. Like, the only way we get multiple parties is if we actually change the way we elect people to office, you know, if we were to do it more like how France or Germany or Sweden yeah. or something like that does it. So the way our political institutions are set up create two parties. But the way political scientists often look at that is those parties are just kind of like two vehicles and they compete with each other. And ideology is the weapon that they use to try to gain power. Um, now that sounds perhaps a little cynical. That's just one theory, but I think it tends to fit. Um, and it's all about who shows up. Do you want to be the driver of that vehicle of that party? Um, in the 80s and 90s, Evangelical Christians came out in droves. Um, in the past, they weren't considered the so-called base of the Republican Party, but they came out at the local level, the county level, the school board level, then to 
then at the state level, then Congress, and then by the 90s, people are talking about social conservatives as being a part of the base of the Republican Party. Uh, and we saw some, we've seen something fairly similar um, with the Tea Party movement in 2010, where people at the very local level, these little groups were saying, we're gonna have people run for school board, for county commissioner, for a state, uh, you know, a state legislature position, um, and then to Congress and the Senate. Um, and they've become kind of their own new base. Um, and so Donald Trump has come along and like what John was saying, has mobilized these um, loosely affiliated voters that haven't voted as consistently in the past and kind of brought them in. Um, I find it, to be honest, a little unlikely that they will be persistent in the future unless they organize, just like Occupy Wall Street. They had it were kind of a flash in the pan, but they failed to organize the way Tea Party groups did and evangelical Christians had churches that created these, these very local level institutions that kept people engaged and involved, that created a vehicle for them to continue. Um, so unless um, those who are very enthusiastic about Trump's candidacy somehow find a way to create lots of groups throughout the country, it's hard for me to see how they continue being a base. They would need another candidate who is as exciting to them as Donald Trump to mobilize them in the same way. On the political parties, I think there'll be a tendency toward complacency if possible, which is to say, uh, if Trump, particularly if Trump loses badly, there'll be a try to, to go back to the past and so on. But however, you have to say, uh, after thinking about it for a while, I mean, there's something wrong here. Uh, the Tea Party was an indication that something was wrong. The depth of that and the ability to organize it and so on was an indication something had gone wrong and something had gone wrong. You'd had a, a, a war go wrong. You'd had a financial crisis. You had a follow-on economic crisis. You had 10% unemployment. A lot of those things. Now we're sort of you know, uh, six to eight years beyond that. The unemployment rate's under 5%, although that's a complicated matter and so on, and things, there's been poor economic growth, but still, you've got a great deal of unha unhappiness in the country that goes beyond the anger, and yet the response of the system is Donald Trump and probably Hillary Clinton, both of whom are enormously disliked by about, what, 40 to 45% of the rest of the, of the country. I mean, this is the kind of response that you get from the, the establishment, as it were, and to that extent, the populist, uh, I came in here sort of thinking I would be skeptical about populism, but the more I talk, the more understandable the whole thing is. The, the, you know, the funny thing, though, is that I'm, I'm more optimistic about the, the trend line in, in favor of Trump, and I don't view it as necessarily at odds uh, with, with the Tea Party, even though it is on so many counts ideologically. The, the theory advanced by the left um, over the course of the past several decades, this, the sort of what's the matter with Kansas kind of thing about you know, people not looking out for their own economic interest. The theory of the left or the theory of President Obama's domestic agenda, particularly Obamacare, was that what we really need to do to get working class people and middle class people behind government is to lock them into the entitlement state to basically give them subsidies and they will defend those subsidies. Once you start handing out to a higher level of people, once you start redistributing to a greater degree, people become dependent on that redistribution and then they will defend it in their own self-interest. That was their theory, that people would be happy with that and that would, be, that would bring them into the democratic coalition, it would make them loyal, it would make them uh, content, et cetera. That theory has been com proven completely wrong. 
because these are exactly the people who should not be upset under that kind of approach. These are the people who are qualifying for those sorts of expansions, those sorts of, of increases in subsidies. I thought the most interesting fact over the course of this, uh, over the course of the past couple of years, was the fact that that Matt Bevan in in Kentucky did better in counties that had seen higher Medicaid expansions, you know, an increase of subsidies compared to other counties. And this was flabbergasting to a lot of liberal analysts. But from my perspective, what it really is saying is they think your answer isn't good enough. They think that your policies aren't good enough. They're not content to have a life where you are on you know, disability and you're on these Medicaid programs and you're locked into these systems. They want something more than that. And so if there's something to be optimistic about when you look at, at all of these trajectories, it's that there is just this Jacksonian stubbornness that runs through the American people that says that, that what government is offering them currently from the left is not good enough. They want something better. They're trying to find that. I think they're trying to find it with the wrong vehicle in, in terms of the person of Donald Trump. But they are still looking for it, which is a lot better than just giving up on the whole process and throwing your hands in the air. Right over here and then over here. Um, I wonder if it's possible to say that in some ways the Tea Party has convinced the majority of the Republican Party, and now the Tea Party is really fighting against its own itself. The more anti-Washington, anti-establishment forces are going to Donald Trump because he's literally not in Washington and opposed by most of Washington. And the more conservative elements of the Tea Party are more rallying around Ted Cruz. And even the third choice pick, Marco Rubio, I mean, he was a Tea Party senator leading the Tea Party flag to get into office. Is it possible to say the Tea Party in some ways has really convinced the Republican voters? Well, uh, you, can't, you can't beat no, you can't, uh, if, if you have no agenda, it can be beaten with an agenda. <laughs> and the Tea Party has an agenda, okay? The Republican Party, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> sometimes on a few things, you know? And so I think that the Tea Party agenda really did win that kind of argument in, in the sense that it became kind of, this, this is the sort of thing that we're going to rally around to push back against the idea that we can make people happy with the Keystone Pipeline and getting rid of the medical device tax. So it's one of these situations where that, I think that that was true to a degree and that the, the energy and the fire within the Republican coalition right now is with people who are more Tea Party friendly or you know, a soft Tea Party kind of members. Um, I think what you're going to see develop is a lot more candidates who look uh, who look like Nebraska's Ben Sass. He is someone who's kind of, he's an insider and an outsider. You know, he's been, he's done the sort of consultant thing and, the, and he has the, the Ivy League degree and everything like that. But when he talks, he talks like a Tea Partier because that is the language that, that he needs to use in order to win. And his priorities and his agenda look a lot like a, a Tea Partier in terms of how, his, how he approaches politics. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in, in the days to come. And I think that's probably going to be a pretty good thing. All right, right down here. Um, where did the Tea Party movement begin? And do you think it would have expanded a lot faster if there was a single figurehead for it? So a lot of people think that the Tea Party began in February of 2009 because that's when they first saw a protest occur. But it actually started before that. Um, a lot of evidence suggests the Tea Party really began 
in the fall of 2008 in reaction to TARP, the bailouts of Wall Street and the financial firms. Um, and one of the main reasons that we know this is that the people who organized those first Tea Party rallies in February, you have to think about it, how long does it take to organize a protest? It takes some time. Um, how did they do it so quickly? Well, the truth is they actually had been organizing for months. In reaction to TARP, um, some conservative libertarian tech uh, activists took to Twitter. Twitter was kind of, it's pretty new at the time. And they started connecting with each other on Twitter using the hashtag TCOT, which stands for Top Conservatives on Twitter. And they created this big list. And they're like, TARP is a disaster. John McCain isn't standing up for us. All the Republican, or President Bush isn't standing up for us, and now the country's probably going to elect President Obama, and we have no one to represent our beliefs of limited government. And so um, they decided to get on a conference call. They started using a free conference call service, and they just had tons of people on these calls. Um, it was described to me as wild and wooly, and people were um, trying to figure out what they could do. And so they started organizing little things back in the fall of 2008, like in reaction to the automaker bailout. They had organized at that point, so they did a few things back then. But then in the February of 2009, they'd already created this network online. And so when CNBC contributor Rick Santelli stood on the floor of the mercantile, um, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. He lambasted um, a particular part of the stimulus package that basically it offered financial assistance to homeowners about uh, facing foreclosure. And he gets up there and he says, the government is rewarding bad behavior. And he goes on this tirade about how the government needs to stop bailing out, bad, rewarding bad behavior and punishing producers. Um, people will make better decisions if they face the consequences of their actions and they know you won't be there to bail them out. Um, so this particular segment that he did went viral. It got him over a million hits in the first 24 hours. It went all over the conservative um, media circuit, you know, like Rush Limbaugh aired it on his show. And most Tea Party activists, and I don't just mean like supporters that we might contact in a survey, but the actual activists on the ground will tell you where they were when they, when they first heard that speech. And even though it was about the stimulus, they thought of it as being about the stimulus and the bailout altogether. And so the people on those conference calls, um, they're like, we have to strike while the iron is hot. That was actually a quote. <laughs> Someone actually said that. Said we should do something, because right now people are energized. And so they started organizing Tea Party protests within about a week of that, um, within about a week of that, um, of that rant, as it was called. But even before that, <clears throat> excuse me, there were several other protests that took place that weren't called Tea Party, but they were called like porculus or you know, something about government spending. So there was something brewing in the American electorate, um, at least through fall, starting in the fall of 2008. But I have, there's probably, even before that, many people felt like President Bush allowed for way too much spending under his watch, especially when there was a Republican-controlled Congress. I mean, spending did increase a lot. And there was rumblings, even among kind of the conservative grassroots, even though it's quote unquote, their tribe, you know, their party, um, there, was, there was concern. And TARP was honestly the last straw, because many of them viewed it as socialism, socializing losses and privatizing profits. Um, and so that's why the Tea Party erupted in the spring of 2009, because they had already been organizing for the past several months. All right. Right down here. Huh. 
So wait, the microphone is on its way. I'm sorry. It's okay. Yes. From a popular point, uh, popular vote point of view, the conservatives are outdistancing the progressives two to one. Um, even though they're splintering or various groups, including insiders plus the four candidates, don't you think that they're energized enough post um, Cleveland that they're going to really turn out very substantially to make sure that the angst they have towards Hillary is never going to get a day of light? Uh, you mean, you say two to one, conservatives outnumber liberals. Conservatives. Yeah. Uh, um, that's possible. Uh, it's also possible that, I mean, the problem you face always in these situations is counter-mobilization. So that's another thing about the election is, I mean, a lot of people will be going to the polls to vote against the other candidate rather than for uh, necessarily Hillary or, or Trump. Uh, I think the Trump um, success or failure depends on bringing in a f what he's done so far is mobilize and getting excited people that usually don't vote. Uh, you usually have, remember we've had high turnout elections and they have something like 55, 58% of eligible voters voting. So if you go beyond that and you're bringing in, that means 40 didn't, and he gets those to the polls, then I think who knows what's going to happen. Uh, but it's not so much that conservatives will be the issue. Uh, it will be people that might identify as conservatives but have often liberal policy positions he might bring into the system. All right, last call for questions. All right, then thank our panel, Ben, Emily, John. Thank you. Thank you.